Hey, welcome back. Please pray with me and we'll get started. I got over just the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the scripture, different stories of people finding you, compared maybe some of our stories with their story, and discovered that, that God, you are a God worth finding. And like it says in the verses we'll read today, that you're not a God who's far away, even though sometimes it feels like that. I pray this morning that by your spirit, you will just bring to life and to light these truths that we read. That maybe some of us have been closed for a really long time in our heart or in our mind to what you're wanting to say to us. And I pray, God, that in this place today, you will open us up just to hear from you and to believe you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So why would anyone want to find God? What does it mean to find God? Is it even possible to find God? And why does it feel sometimes like God is hiding? These are some questions I asked a couple weeks ago when we started our series called The Beginning of Finding. And we started this series because we are passionate about people knowing that God is real and that he can be found and that you can be in relationship with him. But for a lot of people, they just don't even feel like that's possible. Um, For some people, maybe they've heard about God, but they don't feel like God is worth finding. And and we want to address some of those, those things from the different angles people are coming at this. And so, two weeks ago, we looked at the woman who had lost all hope when all hope was gone, and can God be found when we just feel like there's no more hope at all? Last week, we looked at a man who was just in bondage for so long that that he just felt like there was no way to ever be free, and that, that even that person, the person in that place, can find God this week. We're dealing with, is it possible to be intellectually honest and be a Christian? Is it possible if you are a person who just wrestles all the time with thinking and intellectual questions, is it possible for that person really to find God and to find God satisfying? A lot of Christians, I think, assume that it it takes a power moment to be a Christian. And what I mean by that is that all of us look back on this moment, we're like, I don't even know why, but there, yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe that's your story. Maybe, maybe you were in that moment, like last week, the person who was just in bondage for so long, right? Your world was just dark, and all of a sudden, God brought light to your world, and you believed in him. And your question wasn't a lot about intellectual, how the world began, what's the meaning of life. <laughs> that wasn't what you were thinking about. You were just in a dark spot, and God rescued you. Praise God. <laughs> or you might be that person like, like the first week where, where you just, you had have every door shut, right? That your whole life, every experience you had just seemed to be a bad one and you didn't think there was anything worth hoping in and then you found that, that God restores broken stories and that you were like, that's the God I want to serve and you believed in him. But some people don't, 
don't come from that angle. Some people come from this angle where maybe their lives weren't as hard, and they get the time just to sit down and ask intellectual conversa- have intellectual conversations all the time. And for a lot of you guys, that just seems incredibly boring. But I was a philosophy major, so it's not to me. So you have to bear with me, right? And maybe you come to this spot today where you just say, that is where I am. I come just loaded, loaded with questions. And can I really ask those questions and be a Christian? A historian, a really well-known historian, um, said the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Um, And this is a man who's a Christian. And he's just saying the scandal of it is that A lot of people don't think that you can be a Christian and think. But in the Bible, as you flip the pages of Scripture, what it's requiring of you constantly is to be a person who thinks. In Proverbs uh, 2, it says, Turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. It says, look for it as if you're searching for treasure. It says, be the person who goes, I want to understand. And even on top of that, it says, to be a Christian, it requires that you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And so we're supposed to be people who are actually wrestling with these things. So we're going to start by me answering a question that all of you probably have either asked me or would like to ask me which is, why in the world would you get a philosophy degree? Get that all the time. There's no conversation killer. Like when someone says, what was your degree in college? Philosophy. (laughs) Right? We're like, yeah, don't ask him anything. We're going to be here forever. So... A lot of people think that philosophy is just about, what do you think about this? Oh, that's a nice thought. This is what I thought about that. Oh, I'm glad you thought that. That's nice. But it's actually about a lot more than that. Philosophy literally is two words brought together. Philosophia, right? The love of wisdom. Plato, one of the greatest philosophers, said this. He says, the unexamined life is not worth living. And that's really what drives people to study philosophy, is to live, examine life, where they can think through things. There's a couple, this is just, is educational for you guys. There's a, a couple primary studies in philosophy, and I'm going to list those for you, and hopefully it perks some of your interest. The first is metaphysics, which is literally what is really real. <laughs> what's substantial? What's real? The next is epistemology, which is literally just what is true knowledge? How do you know what you know? <laughs> and a lot of you guys are like, <laughs> right, all right. What do you, how do you know what you know? And those are important questions to ask. Logic. What is reasonable? And what is unreasonable? Ethics. What is good? and what is bad, what is right, and what is wrong. And that's why people study philosophy, because they want answers to those questions. They want to know what is really real, what's substantial in this life. And they believe that after you've examined that, maybe you will find that life actually is worth living. So all of those are wrapped up in this one thing, and that is centrally this. What is the meaning of life? 
What is the meaning of life? And if you have asked that question, you might be a little closer to a philosophy major than you think. Beware. There was a man named Viktor Frankl who was uh, in a concentration camp. He was Jewish. And he wrote a book called The Man's Search for Meaning, which is a pretty dense read. But it was a, a New York Times bestseller. And he says this. He says, I don't think it was a bestseller because it was readable. He says, I think it's an expression of the misery of our time. If hundreds of thousands of people would reach out for a book with this title, Man's Search for Meaning, it says, this question must be burning under the fingernails of every single person. Right? So as we ask those questions, that's why we come to today, and, and I'm going to ask the question uh, that we have asked, and just say, when God doesn't make sense, how do I begin finding him? When God doesn't make sense, how do I begin finding him? And that's what brings us to Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And this is a story about, as you'll find, a guy named Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And he goes to Athens, which is a city famous for philosophy. And this is his interaction there. Starting in verse 16... That says 22. We're going to start in 16 and go all the way to 34. It says, While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest idea. And I was actually just going to make a comment about Bainbridge Island. It's not true about Bainbridge Island, but I was there yesterday at a coffee shop, and it seemed like it was true about Bainbridge Island. I like Bainbridge Island, just for the record. Paul then stood in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising this man from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Guys, you don't maybe get just how incredible this story is. And, and every time I read it, I'm just so jazzed, because every time I read it, I, I read, and if you've studied Epicurean or Stoic philosophy, you read his response, and you're like, this guy's brilliant. <laughs> like two paragraphs. He is just completely articulating the gospel in a way that these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers get it, right? Um, he does it in a way, and this is amazing, he does it in a way where he is not directly quoting scripture, but he is interpreting it for them seamlessly in a way that their philosophies will understand it. And this is brilliant. You don't see this any, anything like this, even in the Bible, because everywhere in the Bible, the gospel is, is contextualizing itself to share this one truth with people in a way they understand. That's why even the Gospels are written differently, and that's what's so cool. Right? That's why we have Luke, a Gentile doctor, writing in a way that's different than Mark, who was a follower of Peter. Right? And, and this is just this is phenomenal. And so, so as we, we walk through this, I'm going to share a little more about the context of it and then get into his response. The first thing is that Paul was, it says, distressed when he was walking through the city of Athens. And this is why Paul was distressed. He was distressed because Paul himself had at one point not been a believer in Jesus. Right? Paul had grown up a Jew of Jews, hoping for the Messiah, and so when Jesus came, he felt like he had to kill him again. Right? He just didn't like him. He wanted to kill the idea of Jesus, and so anyone who talked about Jesus, he wanted to kill them, which he did. Okay? That was Paul. And then Paul had this experience where he realized that Jesus really was God, and, and he believed in him. And so when Paul goes to Athens and sees that this city is believing in everything other than the one true God, he is distressed. It's like if you've had a salmon dinner with a sweet glaze on it, and your buddy is even eating top ramen. And you're like, no, you don't know. Top ramen is horrible. Right? And that's what Paul is doing. Paul has just been filled with truth, finally. He, he, all his life he wanted it, and he found it, and he found it so sweet that he was distressed. And I hope for you who have found the truth, when you meet somebody who, who is wrestling through their ideas, sincerely wrestling through their ideas, you go, I am distressed because I want you to share this salmon dinner with me. I ate salmon this week. It was delicious. Verse 17, it says, he went to the synagogue where the Jews were, and this is Paul's pattern. He always went to the place the Jews were because they had received the the revelation of God that the Messiah was going to come. But then he said he also went to the marketplace to those who just happened to be there. And literally what he's doing is he's just walking on these streets. He's not holding signs like, repent, the end of the world is near. Right? He's walking through the streets just talking to people. Getting to know them, getting to know the Epicureans, getting to the Stoic philosophers and all the other schools of philosophy that were there. He's saying, did you grow up around here? 
What do you think about all these idols? Right? Which one do you, what's your favorite idol? <laughs> and he was getting to talk with them and getting to know them. And so he meets, it just mentions two specific schools of philosophy, and, and we're going to talk really briefly about them because I think we can find a lot to relate with in these schools of philosophy. The first Epicureans were atheists. They were followers of a man named Epicurus who came 300, over 300 years before Jesus, and he taught people in the, his garden, and this is what he taught them. He taught that the world was formed, the universe was formed from a lucky collision of atoms that came together, stuck together, and formed the world that we have today. He didn't necessarily deny God, but he believed that God was below the notice of anybody. So God just wasn't worth being mentioned in the equation. And that because of this random chance that brought the world together, that the, the chief pursuit, the main pursuit of people should be pleasure. You're like, wow, we have so many Epicureans in the world today. We do. Right? And, and these are the people who Paul's responding to in his talk. The next were Stoics. They were called Stoics, even though their, their founder wasn't named Stoica. His name was actually Zeno. But Stoa literally means portico, which is he, he taught his people under a portico. These were guys who just gathered people and just wanted to listen to them talk. And, and the Stoics believed that that God was somehow associated with the world. They weren't really sure if he was just a God. They really thought everyone was kind of just part of this God. And God was just, along with everyone else, just as helpless as humanity was. And that they believed in the fates, which literally mean that what's going to happen is going to happen, and you can't do anything about it. So the best thing to do is to reject pleasure and reject pain because both are merely illusions. Because what's going to happen is going to happen. Right? We have Stoics in the world today. So, these two groups of people come and address Paul. And they say, this man is endorsing foreign gods... And you might think, well, that's not too big of a deal because the city is full of gods, but this was actually illegal in Athens and in Rome. And this is actually what Socrates, Socrates was a famous philosopher, um, this is actually what he was put to death for at the Areopagus. Right? They tried him at the Areopagus and they put him to death. Why? Because he was endorsing foreign gods. Okay, so this is the same charge they're leveling at Paul now. So this is a big deal. They're not just saying, let's hear him because we want to include just another God. They're saying, we want to see it if we want to put him to death or not. Okay, so Paul's here walking on, on very thin ice. And, and you should feel kind of at home here with Paul if you've ever been in a situation where people are just sharing about everything. They're sharing about they were drinking on the weekend or you know maybe they were in class and they were talking about this crazy idea and all of a sudden you're like, hey, this Jesus guy, and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> we can talk about anything but that. And that's, that's, literally, that's literally what went on here. 
right? Is that the day it says here in verse 21, they just spend their time talking about the latest idea. But when Jesus is mentioned, everything stops. And they go, we're going to find out if we're going to kill this guy or not. So this is the environment that Paul's talking into. So I've got five points for you, how Paul addresses them. And I hope for you maybe who have intellectual um, questions that you can bring in, these will be really helpful for you. I, I hope that if you are someone who has friends that love asking such questions, that you will maybe from this glean ways to be able to talk to them. The first is that Paul finds a point in common with them. A point in common with them. Okay? And this he finds by pointing out that they have a statue to an unknown God. And literally what these words, they had multiple statues to an unknown God, and they would put these up because they, they just assumed that there was something they had missed out on. Right? They worshipped a lot of gods, but they just assumed that they probably hadn't worshipped all the gods. And so they wanted to set one up just to know if that god was really the powerful god, that he wouldn't be upset for their ignorance. And so they would set it up. And what Paul comes is he finds that point, and he says, you're right. You're right. There is more. And I'm here to talk to you about what is more. And this, isn't, this is just an open door. Anytime you talk to someone, they will have, if they're at all honest, they will have blind spots. And we as Christians, we have blind spots also. We have things that we just don't know about. Right? We are still in conversation about some things. Right? And so to be able to, he comes in and he says, he says, I know that you guys know you need more. And I'm going to tell you about that more. But what this requires is not only sincerity in your agnosticism or sincerity in your man there's more but it also takes sincerity in Christianity to realize that there are points of connection points where you can begin conversation because some of you maybe if you grew up in church are just so filled with Christian jargon you don't even know how to have conversation with people who don't know Jesus right? and, and God just made us for relationship and, and so Paul begins this conversation by just saying, you know what, there are honest questions here, and let's have an honest conversation about them. There's a guy named Francis Schaeffer who um, is just a really smart man and wrote a lot of books about the reasonableness of, of the, the Christian worldview, and he talked all the time about honest answers to honest questions. Honest answers to honest questions. And for Christians, we are about that. We want to be honest with people who have honest questions. But the way he introduces this now is he takes them back to the beginning. This is point number two. So the first is finding a point in common. Point number two is this. He brings them back to the beginning. In verse 24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not build, does not live in temples built by human hands. So, track with me here. Number one issue in philosophy, science, any study is this. Number one issue is this. Are you ready? Is that there is something and not nothing. That's the big issue. If there was nothing, 
Well, you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but, the, but here we have something, right? This might be helpful for you guys to understand if, uh, if you, say if you're a guy and you like a girl, there's trouble. Because there is something, not nothing. <laughs> right? If there's nothing there, you're like, whatever. <laughs> but if there's something, oh, trouble. And what, what is so challenging ab- about the questions we ask is because there is something here. There is a universe, especially filled with little people who run around asking questions like, what is the meaning of life? Right? And, and we are persistent, and we want it. And if, if we're not asking those questions, we know we're living passively, right? And it all comes back to a beginning, right? In, in a book called A Short History of Nearly Everything by a guy named Bill, Bill Bryson, it says, in three minutes, 98% of all matter there is or will ever be has been produced. We have a universe, there is a beginning. There is something. <laughs> we all know that. But we also know that something doesn't come from nothing, right? Nothing has ever come from, something has never come from nothing, right? So, so where does everything come from? Because if we allow something to come from nothing, then there really is no reason for anything. Are you guys tracking with me? It's kind of like a riddle. If we allow something to come from nothing, then there's really no reason for anything. There's no purpose. And and this stumps scientists, this stumps philosophers. Because we're blind to where everything came from. We need an answer for this. Uh, A philosopher, Bertrand Russell, who was the best known atheist of the 20th century, he says, it's just there. Right? And that's just, that's just not satisfying, right? Because if something comes from nothing, there's no reason for anything. And ultimately, without that foundation of where things come from, we can ask endless questions and endless questions and endless questions and never assume that there will be an answer for anything. But where Paul starts is so important because it provides a foundation for everything else that there is, right? When we talk about biblical manhood, right? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman, right? The issues Paul addresses in this is purpose, identity, justice, worship, all these things he tracks back to... God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Everything in it is created and has been created with purpose. In Job 38, it says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know the dimensions uh, were determined and how they were surveyed? What supports its foundation? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together? And the angels shouted for joy. In Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For the Lord says this, Who created the heavens and the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it as a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. Isn't that beautiful? Isaiah 45, 18, He did not create it to be a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. Inhabited. 
And this is really, really important information. And this is, I will say this, this is information that precedes relationship. Right? Oftentimes in, in Christianity, we're, we're so, we talk a lot about relationship. And we're like, we hate religion. We just love relationship. Right? <laughs> we do love relationship. But when we talk about religion, this is oftentimes what we mean. And this is a good understanding about it. It is, when we talk about it, it's the account, literally when we talk about the Bible, right? It's the account of a relationship between a creator and his creation, right? Which is the foundation for everything else. And that's why a lot of times there isn't an evangelical mind. Why? Because we're so based upon relationship, and we don't realize that there's information that that ignites that relationship. Does that make sense? So if you're a husband, you could know your wife likes flowers, but if you do not bring her flowers, you fail. There's information, but you can fail in that relationship if you don't take into consideration the information. I thought that was a really good illustration. Right? So there's inf- <laughs> Amen. Right? So, so this is important. So don't be stupid. Okay? I did use the S word. Stupid. Okay. And what I mean by this is don't think that you, your whole life can go from feeling to feeling thinking that that's Christianity. Because it's not. Because the reason why there are so many pages here is because there's information here that ignites our relationship with God. Right? There are answers in here to why you exist. Answers to why you exist. And if you just go by going, oh, I just have this grand feeling, that isn't what God is offering ultimately. He's offering you to not just know him intimately, but know you intellectually also. Know him intellectually also. Does that make sense? And so that's why Paul traces it back to the beginning. And so this ultimately, in philosophy, we call this epistemology, right? How do we know what we know? For us as Christians... It it doesn't just depend on what we can feel, but it depends also on revelation, right? What happened before the beginning? Did something come from nothing? As a Christian, we say, no, that's irrational. It's irrational for something to come from, especially little things that run around going, show me meaning in life. I love you, I love you, right? Right? For, For those kinds of people, we go back... And our epistemology, how do we know what we know, is based both upon natural understanding, sciences, and all those, but it's also based upon revelation because we believe that God is communicating with people. And that is a good reason. Okay? Third point is this. When we allow this, the world was founded in such a way that God is doing it, not your smartness, because you weren't there, that we oftentimes find a different God than we thought if we were to do it ourselves. Right? So oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, I wouldn't run the world in this way. Thank you for not running the world. Right? Um, <laughs> that would be horrible if any one of us were the ones that, that ran the world. The world was founded by God, and so God is the one that gets to define us 
we don't get to define God. In the book of Daniel uh, 4, this is what it says. Just wrap, wrap your minds around this. Daniel 4, starting in verse 20. I think this is it. Oh, no, yeah, sorry, no, four verses 34 to 35. And it says, at the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Something had happened to him where he had lost his mind. But he says, when my reason was restored to me, he says, I praised the Most High, and I glorified him who lives forever. Get this. If you're not tracking, track with me here. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this changes this changes our perspective. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And, and this is why, because most of us live our lives going, God, you can't do that. And the Bible is going, God can do whatever he wants. But thankfully, he has grace upon us. Right? So it's this, this massive reversal. And so he, Paul's redefining of it for the Epicureans and the Stokes, he says, this God doesn't live in temples. He is not served by human hands as if he needed us. He's not made from human material, silver or gold. He's not made by man. But God is the one who will hold people accountable. People will not hold God accountable. And ultimately, he came in the form of Jesus Christ. A different God than we would have thought. And a different God, oftentimes, than we would have wanted. Because we want a God who will do what we want. And this is not the God of the Bible. So, we find a point that is shared in common. We find a beginning, and we find a different God that we expect. But we find a God who can be found. In Paul's explanation, he says... God wants men to seek him so they can find him. Though he is not far from any of us. Though he is not far from any of us. But for a lot of us, and a lot of people you talk to, they're like, that is so false. Because sometimes God just feels so hidden. God feels so far away. The philosopher Bertrand Russell, who I mentioned earlier, the atheist, someone asked him, if, if you end up being wrong, and you get to heaven, you could ask God one thing. Bertrand Russell said this is what he would ask God. Why didn't you give me more evidence? I need more evidence. So why does it feel like God is hiding? In Romans chapter 1, It says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his eternal power has been seen clearly, being understood so that men are without excuse. God has been clearly seen and is visible. 
And I think, I think we're, we're challenged by that, and I, and I agree that is really challenging, and, and a verse that really helps me with it. Because I, I think, I think when, you, when you come to him and you begin seeing the world through this, that God founded it. You didn't find it, found it, or find it. You were just here, right? And God was the one who founded it. Um, you, you really see the world in a different way. Because before that, even though God isn't far away, we are blinded to that fact. And in, in 1 Corinthians, sorry, no, in 2 Corinthians 4, there's a verse that really helps us. It says that the gospel definitely is veiled. But then it goes on to say this. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so, so we aren't just really tracked to me. This is, this is, I know this is like philosophy 101 for you guys, but, but because we are not just rational beings. We are also spiritual beings, and spiritually what's going on here is that we are bound. None of you ever and ever will ever function like, ever, ever, like rational beings, right? You will lose your rationality the moment that you get angry or fall in love or do a lot of other things that we are just so prone to do, right? We are beyond being people who merely walk through steps of rationality. We are also people who are deeply spiritual. And in that, the testimony of the Bible and the revelation of God shows us, and I this made so much sense to me too as I was running yesterday. I, I, was, I was wrestling through what I was going to talk about, and I was saying, but God, there's, I know you formed the world and everything in it, and God, as I just run, I mean, everything seems, seems to be calling your name. I go, why is there so much suffering? We ask those questions. That's one of the big intellectual questions. And all of a sudden, this verse came to mind, and I realized, like, like we live in a world that the, it's the domain of this world is so run by the evil one. In the Bible, it says that God is God. God is almighty, and he is righteous. He's going to call the world to account because he has let himself be made known, and he is not far away. But, but, so, but, but we live in this world, under the kingdom of Satan, right? And, and it says the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So even as we go through and we walk through this, and I, I, think, I think as we talk about Christianity, I think it is the most reasonable, rational belief possible out there, right? But we don't function in those ways, and our minds are just closed off to that because he has closed the mind of unbelievers. That they, when they hear about a God who created everything and get this, and this is, this is really important, because he created everything, we'll call everything to account. We don't want that. And what's better? Epicureanism is better than that, right? In our minds, pleasure, way better than that, right? Or for the person who has experienced tremendous pain, stoicism is better than that. What's stoicism? Well, pain is just meaningless and joy is also meaningless, right? So, what the Bible is presenting, what he ends with here, is that, this is the last point, God has final authority and is the final reality. He is the final authority because he is creator, and he lays claim upon everything that he has made. 
in his final reality, and that reality has been seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, though. It says that the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but those who are being saved is the power of God. Where's the wise man and where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? God has made foolish their wisdom. For since the wisdom of God, uh, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who would believe. So God is presenting himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But that is a reality that is very, very hard to grab a hold of if you are a person who desperately, desperately wants to do it by yourself and by your own intellect to somehow attain to God. And that's why as we come back to the Bible, man, and I believe in the revelation of the scripture is because the Christian is the person who has come humbly and said, okay, we need to found ourselves upon something that's revealed to us. It just can't be something I come up with. And I want to share really quickly with you this. Um, Bertrand Russell, who, again, right, the preeminent, premier atheist of the 20th century, his daughter, Catherine, uh, later became a Christian and wrote his, auto, wrote his biography. And this is what she wrote. She wrote, Russell was not open to serious discussion of God's existence. She says, I could not even talk with him about religion. I would have liked to convince my father I had found what he was looking for, the ineffable something he longed for his whole life. I would have liked to persuade him that the search for God is not in vain. But that conversation was hopeless to have with him. I had known, he had known too many blind Christians, bleak moralists who sucked the joy out of life he would never have been able to see the truth that they were hiding. And she continues and says this, his whole life, Bertrand Russell's whole life, was a search for God. Somewhere at the back of my father's mind, at the bottom of his heart, in the very depth of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God, and he never found anything else to put in it. He had a ghost-like feeling of not belonging and of having no home in this world. In Russell's own words that he wrote, he wrote this, Nothing can penetrate the loneliness of the human heart except the highest intensity of the sort of love the religious teachers have preached. There is nothing that can penetrate the loneliness of the human heart except the highest intensity of the sort of love that the religious teachers preach. And guys, this is it. I... that we have been offered not merely intellectual answers, which they are there, and ask your questions and bring them to the table, but we've been offered something that is more also, which is an intense love that is for you in the person of Jesus Christ because, get this, because you were made. And that is the foundation, right? Not because you are here purposelessly, but you're here purposefully, 
And God loves you with an intense love, and he welcomes you into that love. And the way to come back into that, Paul offers in his sermon, and he says, it comes through repentance to restoration of relationship. Right? That God and the person of Jesus Christ came and gave you tangible evidence in history that he is deeply in love with you. And he's calling you into that relationship with himself and asking you to come. But what it requires is something that if you rely upon your reason alone, you will never give, which is repentance. Because you will never repent to your own intellect. And you will forever be boxed in and bound by trying to make excuses for why the world is so messed up. Or why this happened in your life, or that happened in your life, or why this happened overseas, or, right? But we constantly be questions, always longing for this one thing, which is, is there meaning? And the, question, the answer is yes, there is meaning. And, and so many are blind to that because the God of this world is blind the minds of unbelievers to think, I just need to think a little more. And God is going, you don't need to think a little more, you need to repent. Right? You need to give up your efforts to save yourself. And come to Jesus who alone can save you. And this is the truth of the gospel. And this is why at the end of it, when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus, which is the cure and is the answer, many scoffed, yet some followed. And I hope, I pray, that here, some will follow and find that God is calling us to truly love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And he's just, he's not far, guys. Just come with me to him and, and receive what he's offering. Let's worship together. Pray with me. God, there was a lot and we preached here and God, I pray that this will make sense. God, this will just, these truths of scripture will really God, be like like water to thirsty minds that have been going, I am asking questions and I want answers. And God, the revelation of scripture that you will you'll present again to us and we will see that we can live by it and Find our lives built upon it. God, I thank you that this truth ultimately frees us to worship and find ourselves um, in this world we live in right now and can worship as we go out and see how beautiful it is and realize it was made with purpose and you're calling us back into a purposeful relationship with you. God, I just long for this to make sense to those who are hearing right now. I pray this will happen by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.